Have you ever wondered how marketers practice their craft? Well, it begins with an insight. Identifying an unmet need of the consumer, something that creates an itch, something that the consumer is looking to fulfill. If you can find a way to put your brand in front of that, you have a good chance of earning their loyalty. My entire career, one of the favorite brands I worked with was Dove, a bar soap. See, back then, soap was all about functional benefits. Ivory was soft as a baby skin, and it floated if you dropped it in the bathtub. Irish Spring was for men and to smell like a fresh spring forest. And Dove was all about the moisturizer. But one thing that Dove started noticing that dermatologists were recommending Dove to teenagers who came to see them because they started to develop acne, the byproduct of raging hormones. Dove wasn't made with talent, so it was better to unclog pores. You can imagine that Dove would have jumped at a campaign talking about the percentage of dermatologists that preferred Dove over anything else, but something made him go beneath the surface. They started looking at what happened to these young adults, especially young girls, when they started to develop acne, pimples on their skin. Their behavior changed, their mindset, their self-esteem, their confidence, that every time they looked in the mirror, they felt more insecure. So Dub commissioned a massive global study on beauty. And what they found out was startling. That only 2% of women in the world would describe themselves as beautiful. And the reason being is they were chasing false beauty stereotypes. Stereotypes perpetuated by Hollywood or fashion magazines that had photoshopped women. And this was way before the Kardashians and all that comes with social media in terms of filters and, and validation and, and presenting yourself as the most interesting person in the world 15 times a day. But Dove had to convince the management team, mostly white males at the time, that this was a strategy for moving forward that had a higher purpose than just talking about functional benefits. And the mythology, and I believe it's correct, is to do so, they filmed the wives and daughters of these men, asking them how they felt about beauty. And when they played the film to the decision makers, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. And that was the beginning of the campaign for real beauty. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. And this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. And the interesting thing about this global campaign, arguably one of the best marketing campaigns of all time, is that three Canadians played a major role, Janet Keston and Nancy Vonk from Ogilvy Canada, and a brilliant young Unilever marketer named Sharon McLeod. And their work stands the test of time. I showed up to a place I'd never been, and there was a guy with a drafting board. We couldn't see them, they couldn't see us. Tell me about your hair. I didn't know what he was doing, but then I could tell after several questions that he was drawing me. Tell me about your chin. It kind of protrudes a little bit, hmm. especially when I smile. Your jaw? My mom told me I had a big jaw. What would be your most prominent feature? Kind of have a fat, rounder face. Once I get a sketch, I say thank you very much, and then they leave. I don't see him. Today I'm going to ask you some questions about uh, a person you met earlier, and I'm going to ask you some general questions about their face. She was thin, so you could see her cheekbones. And her chin, it was a nice, thin, 
chin. So here we are. This is the sketch that you helped me create, and that's a sketch that somebody described of you. She looks closed off and fatter. Sadder, too. Mm -hmm. The second one looks more open, friendly, and happy. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's... The other reason I'm talking to you about Dove is I'm really talking about young adults. For me, I was a father of two daughters, someone who sat on the board of an all-girls school for eight years. I was always concerned about how much pressure we put on them. Expectations, you know, high school, you must take university courses, you must get good marks. The fact that so many people live vicariously through the youth nowadays. I'm wondering what that was doing to their mental health, their confidence. And then the final reason is someone named Laura Hearn. Laura first connected with me on LinkedIn to tell me she enjoyed my podcast. And her credentials caught my eye, BBC journalist and producer. So we started chatting over Zoom. I asked her about her story because I believe inside all of us is a story to share. What she told me floored me. For over 20 years, she hid an eating disorder or tried to hide it. And it was only one day when she was denied the thing she loved most, riding a horse, when she didn't have the strength to pull herself up in a saddle, did she realize her life was permanently out of control. Well, this is Laura's story. I also invite her mom, Linda Kent, to join me because I think that when someone in your life has a mental health problem, well, it cascades over to everyone. Laura, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Hi, Tony. Thank you for having me. When you first talked to me about your eating disorder, you were quick to point out that it had nothing to do with chasing false beauty stereotypes and everything to do with your family. So tell me a little bit about your family growing up. I grew up um, with a mom and a dad, obviously. They didn't stay together um, and they separated when I was quite young, um, around, I think, Twice, I think my mom told me around the age of five and then again a couple of years later. And I guess uh, I don't ever really remember my dad being at home. Um, so I remember quite a lot of, I guess, angst um, when my mom was on her own and she tried to keep us in the house that we were, we lived in as a family and then started to work for a guy who eventually became my stepfather. And I guess he kind of saved us in a way. Um she, we ended up moving, so I had to move schools and uh, we moved house into his house. Um, his name's Michael. And um, yeah, it was it was a difficult transition, I guess. There was quite a lot of um, upset at home. My sister is seven years older than me and she was kind of like a, a bossy. She's, she's very different to me. I'm quite quiet generally and was quite shy as a child. And my sister was the complete opposite. She was very um, volatile and there were a lot of arguments at home between her and my stepfather and my mom. And um, I think I remember a lot of me being a peacemaker, um, trying to break up arguments and standing in the middle of, of all three of them, really. Um, and then I would often go into my room and just like, and they lock myself away. Um, How old were you when this was all happening? God, I probably I was probably eight or nine, um, and yeah, it was it was yeah it was very it was it was not easy. It was not easy. You moved to a different place, different school, uh, and when you moved in with your stepfather, was was there any siblings other than your sister involved? Um, no, my stepfather has uh, two had two has two stepsons. Um, 
but there was no one else living at home. And I would spend, it was, you know, every other weekend I would go to my dad's um, and he had um, remarried by then to my stepmom. Um, and if I'm honest, like I really loved going there um, because Michael was a lot older than my dad. And I felt like he was quite um, a fuss pot. I resented him. And I guess I just wanted my mom and dad to be together really. And when I went to my dad's, it was like quite fun. And so when I came home, at the weekends, I was always really sad. And then every other Thursday, my dad would take me out for like a burger <laughs> after school. So I saw him, you know, I always saw him. It was always a constant. Laura, when did you know you were first getting pushed out, that you were no longer the only apple of your dad's eye? It, was, it wasn't long after my step that my stepmom and my dad had a child who is my half-sister. Um, I guess it was when we went on a holiday as a family and my half-sister was only around six months. And they asked me to babysit her um, while they went for a walk on the beach. And her being only six months, she was crying and I was eight or nine and I didn't really know what to do with her. Um, so I, I called out to them as they were walking down to the beach and said, look, can you, you know, please, can you come back? I don't know what to do. Um, and after that, it caused quite a lot of conflict. I think my stepmom felt like I was trying to stop her spending time with my father. It was almost like a weird jealousy kind of thing. And after that, it was, yeah, our relationship kind of went downhill over the years. I mean, there were periods of time when we were okay, but mostly it became um, wanting to just have my half-sister and, and my dad and their little unit. So it was tricky. So you're seven or eight years old and this starts to unravel that you no longer have any safe place to go to with, with respect to both your mom and the older stepfather and, and your dad and the new stepmother and child. How about school? I mean, friends, where, where did you turn to as a young child saying, this is a place I feel like I belong? It was in my second year of secondary school. And I met um, a really good friend of mine. He's still a good friend of mine. And she had a horse. And I've always, I've, I guess I've always loved horses, but I went with her one day after school and, and started riding with her. And yeah, it was a place where I felt completely, uh, I could completely escape um, and lose myself. And I eventually was really lucky enough. My mum helped me um, get my first pony called Coco. And uh, I was besotted by him. I remember seeing him in the stall um, at a dealer's yard and he was like a baby and really scared. And I just wanted to take him home and rescue him. And um, he was just like the most beautiful friendship and he helped me through so, so much. And um, I found a place where I could belong and, you know, the stables, I just, I loved it there. I love the smell of the stables. I love the tack, the, you know, just mucking out. I never cared whether I rode or not. I just love being around them. They're magical and it hasn't left me when <laughs> I'm well into my thirties and wherever I go, mum always says you find a horse before you find a house. And that's always been true. <laughs> You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My special guest, Laura Hearn. If you live in England, you'll recognize her as a BBC journalist and producer. In Canada, you might recognize or relate to her situation. So tell me a little bit about when you saw Coco for the first time and that scared cult that you wanted to adopt. And I'm not trying to pretend to be a psychologist, but did you see a lot of yourself in that horse? Yeah, he was vulnerable. He was really vulnerable. And um, I just wanted to rescue him, I guess. I wanted to look after him. And, you know, my mum, 
I've always felt like quite safe at home with my mum. She's always been, you know, my best friend and my go-to person, but I didn't really like either home environment massively. I, I, um, and when I was at the stables, I was just like, oh, I could just breathe again. And, um, I guess, yeah, take care of something, can nurture something, can love it. Um, yeah, it was a real safe place for me. And in 1998, your stepfather dies in a car crash following a crime. How did that happen? Um, yeah, this was uh, difficult. He had been being treated for a condition um, where he was on steroids and a lot of medication. And we had um, a holiday home in Spain. And Michael was the most generous man. He would pay for us to go and spend a long, you know, a long summer there. But for several years, he hadn't been allowed to go because the doctor said you were too sick to go. So this last year, he was, you know, able to go and he worked his entire year for us to be able to go there and pay for us all to have a lovely time. So we went and um, I guess I was, you know, by 16 or 17 by then. And I was sort of being a bit of a, you know, a pain in the butt, I guess. I was hanging out with some guys that I probably shouldn't have been hanging out with. And it really kind of upset Michael. It was, uh, he got quite cross. He had a short temper because of the medication he was on. And when we came back from holiday that night, we were, we had been burgled and my sister and my stepbrother were there. It was quite late. And they sort of picked us up at the airport and told us what had happened. And it was, you know, quite a bad burglary. I don't know why, but I went, I went to a party or a friend's party up the road and um, Michael decided to go to his, his work office and, and pick up some stuff. And there was, it was, so it was quite chaotic at home. So it was burglary happening, happening, and he'd gone, I'd gone out, he'd gone out. And I remember at about, I don't know, it was maybe late 11 PM or midnight. And I was being picked up from this party and my stepbrother came and picked me up and, um, he walked across the field and, there was all this music going on and I, it was a toga party. So I was dressed in like a toga outfit. And as he walked across the field, I just thought, this is a bit weird. He shouldn't be picking me up now. And, um, and I said to him, what's happened? What's wrong? And I, and I just knew, and I, I knew it was something to do with Michael. I thought because of his illness, he was sick or something had happened. And, um, I remember screaming, just screaming in that field. And it was, it was only about a, a four minute car ride home back home but it felt like forever and when we got home there were like flashing lights on the drive everywhere the police were there I can't really remember much after that other than chaotic we had a had a kitchen in the house and it was renowned for everyone sort of coming into the kitchen it was like the hub of the house and it was full of people and, and he died and you talked to me in a when we were chatting about this interview that he, he, he left and you had so many regrets could you share a couple of them with us? Um, oh, wait. Yeah, I did have quite a few regrets around his death. I didn't have closure. And really, I wanted to have apologized to him for being a bit of a pain in, of a teenager that holiday and ruining his holiday. I felt like I had ruined his holiday. And I never had a chance to say sorry and... I think also I never really told him how much I loved him or how much I appreciated him because without him, my mum and I and my sister would probably be 
um, probably in a far worse place. <laughs> um, you know, he saved us. He gave us a home. He looked after my mom. He treated her like a princess. And he was, you know, he was older and a bit of a fuss pot. You know, he would tell me to turn the lights off in each room and wear my slippers uh, through, you know, from the kitchen to the lounge. He listened to Frank Sinatra. And at the time I thought, oh my God, this is so old. You're so old. And now I love Frank Sinatra. I would, um, you know, what I would do to have just, you know, a drink with him. He loved to come home from work and have a whiskey on the table. My mum would pour it for him or a scotch and what I would do to have that time now. And I guess I just wished I'd been able to say, you know, Michael, how much I loved you and how grateful I am for what you did for us. But it was taken away and it really affected yeah, it was the catalyst for sure for my eating disorder. What did your mum say to you at his funeral? <laughs> yeah, she said uh, you had your feet up on the pews and it was almost as if you weren't there. I don't even remember being there. And why do you think that was? Um, I think I completely shut it down. I think I I did not know how to process grief. I mean, I'd, I'd never lost anyone before. Um and I, I just went through emotion, I guess it was, um, it's only years, you know, or several months later that I started to, to try and cope with the grief in a very unhealthy way through my eating disorder. After your stepfather passed away and you went off and took your gap year and sort of just headed off to New Zealand, what were you hoping to, to find in New Zealand? Was it just, I just needed a year away or was it more to trying to figure out how to deal with guilt and how to deal with the bullying and all the turmoil you had as a young kid. I didn't go thinking I was going to escape. I went on a, a gap year with my, you know, my friend who introduced me to horses actually to Australia and New Zealand. And um, it was already planned, but in hindsight, it was quite, I suppose it was quite a strange thing to do so quickly after a sudden, you know, death after Michael had died, just go. You know, I'm going to bring your mom onto the show later on because I'm curious to how she felt with you heading off in New Zealand, something happened that triggered your eating disorder. So we were traveling and, you know, we we're on a bit of a budget. So we decided one night, you know, where can we go and get some dinner? We went to a Chinese or you can eat buffet thinking, you know, you can fill up. And as we sat there, I'd, I don't even remember eating too much, but I had this compulsion to go to the toilet, to the bathroom and get rid of what I'd just consumed. I'd never done it ever before. And I just don't know what sent me to the bathroom, but I did. And after that, it was like I couldn't not do it. And then we were in um, we were in Bangkok. It started to get a bit obvious to my friend and that I was obviously going to the, the bathroom frequently after we'd eaten. And I just thought it's much easier not to eat. Like no one's going to notice that if I start reducing what I was eating. And so I did. Um, but the thing is with an eating disorder, and I didn't know at the time, it wasn't like I could just stop. But we came back, I kind of was congratulated because I'd lost that chubbiness. Um, and I was kind of tanned and looking quite radiant. And everyone was like, you look great. And that fed the eating disorder even more really, really rapidly. So when you first start throwing up, I'm asking this because I'm trying to understand it, is what? how do you feel after it's done? Do you come back and going that I, I've accomplished something or do you come back questioning your motivations for doing that? Honestly, it feels great. It felt great. I felt like I 
had, uh, I was clean again. That's how it feels. I think, you know, I've had tendencies of OCD and it, you feel, um, it's, I can relate it to that. You feel everything is in order. You feel proud, you feel good. It's kind of like a buzz. You get a high off of it. A bit like when you restrict and reduce, you have this crazy willpower that other people think is something to congratulate you for. But it, you're not in control of it. Eventually it becomes totally in control of you. And it became a monster in my head that I did not know where it had come from or how to get rid of it. It encompassed every crevice of my body and my mind and my thinking. It's Tony Chapman and this is Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. When we come back, Laura's stepfather's death and her guilt begins her eating disorder and eventually even thoughts of suicide. Hi, this is Tony Chapman, host of the radio show and podcast, Chatter That Matters. Did you know that only one in five youth with a mental health illness can get access to the care they need? Well, a big shout out to the RBC Foundation and RBC Future Launch for supporting over 150 youth mental health organizations. And in doing so, they help youth and their families get the care they need and deserve. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. My guest, Laura Hearn, a former BBC journalist and producer, loves horses. One day she found herself too weak from an eating disorder to pull herself onto the saddle. Laura, in 2001, you go to the first time you go to a treatment center. Did it open your eyes to what was happening to you or? Uh, No, I was hugely in denial. I mean, the lead up to it was, you know, my mum and my sister frantically trying to research places for me to go. They'd never heard of an eating disorder. Um, But, you know, I I was throwing food over the garden fence. I was um, throwing food against the wall. I was really angry. They put me in a treatment center for sort of six weeks and it was a a treatment center for addiction, basically. So I was surrounded by alcoholics and drug users and things and, my eating sort of wasn't really clocked as much. I was able to, you know, I remember giving um, Annabelle, my alcoholic friend, I called her half my baked potato at the meal tables and she just took it off thinking she was helping me and the staff wasn't wasn't watching. So, I mean, it helped me to uh, process some feelings and talk about Michael Moore in a group setting, but um, did it help cure my eating disorder? No, not at all. So it was the first time you really had a chance to at least openly talk about your stepfather. Yeah, it started off a process of me talking about it, but do I think it really um, got into the core of my feelings of guilt and shame and the fact that I felt like my eating disorder was a way to repay him. I felt like if I'd punished myself or hurt him, hurt myself enough, then it was almost like a, a repent. And that was clocked or almost went along in parallel with with trying to crave attention from my father at the same my real father at the same time and how was he reacting to all of this my dad was very much in in denial I guess I remember him coming to a family meeting I think he asked the the therapist why is she like this why is she doing this he said well you know she, she finds it difficult to process things and to understand her feelings and her emotions and you know, things that have happened in her past. And I remember him just being, he kind of just said, yeah, well, you know, it happens. Like, 
I thought, I remember walking out of the room crying, thinking, you just don't get it, dad. And, you know, he's right, actually, when I think about it and how stuff happens in your life and you can't always revert back to an eating disorder. But at the time, I had no other coping mechanism. I didn't have the tools to know how to live in the world or to you know, ask for what I wanted or how to get my needs met. And you go off to university and you describe it as, a, you know, a place, an art school, a place for misfits where you finally feel you belong. But, you know, square pegs are okay. But while you're there, your mom gets some bad news. Yeah, I was in my first year and I remember my mom and sister driving down to Cornwall. They told me that my mom had breast cancer. Again, I feel, I feel in hindsight now I was really absent. They were really worried about upsetting me or triggering my eating disorder, which has been something that continues to this day. And so they almost protected me. I was almost like a Peter Pan child. Everything was about protecting Laura because who knows what's going to send her off into her eating disorder and we can't do that. And so my, my older sister really became her support, I think. She, you know, she, she was the one who held her hands when she had to have a cold cap on her head. She was the one who went to have to the hospital with her. I don't even think I went to one hospital session to see my mom. I feel, you know, that's another thing I feel terrible about because my eating disorder was just, you know, robbed me. It was a self-centered condition and it made me very absent from my loved ones and from things that were really important to them. I'm going to now move to sort of Laura, the professional. In 2006, you graduate, you get a job at the BBC as a journalist and producer, but it's in London. How did you come to terms with one, getting this great job, and two, once again, moving to a place where someone that never really feels they belong has to find and plant roots? I'd always wanted to work for the BBC, and that probably comes a lot from my real father. He um, He's an avid BBC fan, and possibly part of it was that I wanted him to be proud of me if I worked at the BBC, but I, I had a huge admiration for it anyway as a journalist. Um, and I was really persistent to get my job. I remember traveling up three times on a six hour train ride from university to meet an editor of a program. And the first two times he wasn't even there. And I thought, geez, you know, I've come all this way, but I, I kept pestering. And the third time he was there and I think he was just either annoyed with me that I was just chasing him. He let me come in. And after that, he said, sure, you want to stay? I loved it. But at the same time, it was very lonely moving to London. You know, I'd come from a sort of a warm bubble, I guess, at university. It was a really small town on the beach with a load of misfits and we all fitted perfectly. But when I went to London, it was just like the most lonely place in the world, surrounded by millions and millions of people feeling so alone you find people, but when you have an eating disorder, you can't actually properly connect with anybody because generally, you know, it involves having a drink or do you want to come for dinner? It'd be like, no, um, I can meet you, but maybe for a cup of tea or something instead. With your dad missing in action and you're losing your stepdad, how was your relationship through university in London in terms of finding males, finding a partner? It was non-existent, Tony. Like I, um, you know, for most of my 20s, which was when I was in London um, working, I was in and out of treatment all the time, um, a day treatment center or, you know, one-to-one -one therapy. Um, and how do you tell someone that you're in therapy for an eating disorder when physically you look not very well and mentally you're not very well? When you're not attractive in, in, in your mind or your body, 
And two, I just wasn't interested at all um, until, you know, my late, sort of late 20s. And then I started to notice people, you know, my friends, they were getting married or having babies. And there I was, you know, still going to a therapy session, talking about my eating disorder completely alone. It was non-existent, really non-existent. Laura, you, you leave the BBC and move back with your dad and stepmom. That must have taken a lot to make that decision. What brought you to that point? I'm not sure I made that decision. Um, I was relapsing really badly. Therapists had kind of suggested, you know, Laura really craves her father's attention. She didn't have that relationship with him growing up. Perhaps if you go and have a respite with him down in Cornwall in the fields, you know, in the countryside. And, and it was meant to be for two weeks and it ended up being five or six months. And it was really interesting as I look back on that person there, I turned into a child again. The child that would have been there, I guess, as a five or six year old. I craved his attention so much and I realized it was as much as my much a part of my eating disorder as Michael's death was. I felt like if I was thin enough or ill enough, that equated his love. But it really wasn't. It was uh, it was only negative love and worry at the end of the day. And it was difficult because there was conflict around my like the length of time I was staying there, there with my stepmom. And it was the first time I actually did self-harm. And that's not something that I have ever really continued to do. But I was so desperate to say, look, I really want to stay. I want to stay. Don't send me away. And this is how much I need you to love me. It was really difficult and it clearly didn't work. And so then... We had to find somewhere else for me to go. When did you get to the point where you couldn't even pull yourself up on the one thing that you found happiness and peace was, which was riding horses? When was that? I was back in London and um, there was a lovely chestnut horse that I used to ride and he was quite big and I loved him. He was called Ronan. And um, I remember going to the stables one day and I probably hadn't eaten very much for several days. And I tacked him up, put the saddle on, and I went to get on him, and I felt really dizzy. And I thought, oh, it's not really safe to ride this horse. I shouldn't get on it. And I remember getting in my sitting in my car. I untacked him and sat in my car, and I thought, how dare you? You know, the one thing that is your safe place, your sanctuary, and the place you love, you now can't do. It had robbed you of that. I was so weak and had no strength, I couldn't get up on him. It was a really, yeah, it was a really dark day for me. And through this, someone appears in your life Carolyn Costin, tell me a little bit about Carolyn and what did she offer that saved you from this horrible tailspin? This woman um, was introduced to me through a therapist I was seeing at the time. He said, I think you should read this book, Laura. I read the first three pages of this book and I remember sitting on my bed and I just burst into tears and I thought, my God, this woman gets it. Like the crazy illogical things that go on in your mind when you have an eating disorder, they are not logical, you know? As a professional, I can, you know, hold down a job just at times, but um, but the most basic fundamental thing of feeding yourself adequately just <laughs> didn't equate. Um, I said to, to my family, I said, this woman really gets it. Um, so they reached out to her. She had a treatment center in California. Somehow, by some miracle, a family friend donated enough money for me to go for six weeks. I remember opening the door and it was just a house. It was just a home in the hills. It wasn't a clinical treatment center like I'd been before. 
It was a six bedroom house that this woman, Caroline, had bought and she had set up. It was a place that she had hoped to existed when she was trying to recover from an anorexia. And she is just a pioneer, um, someone who could be a role model and show me that life was better without your eating disorder. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My special guest today is Laura Hearn. Someone appears in your life, Carolyn Costin. Not only did you get stuff from the program, or not only did she provide you a, a North Star, you're at now one of her eating disorder coaches. Yeah, I speak to her quite regularly now still. Um, she still remembers you know, the nightmare that I was there. It was a really special time. It was a really special place. It was um, something that has continued to be a really positive part of my life. But I also hold quite a lot of shame and guilt around the fact that it cost my mum her house to keep me there for six months. It's a financial burden that I don't think any parent should have to have to carry, um, but without a doubt, it saved my life. And it's something that I feel really passionately about now that access to adequate treatment or the right treatment shouldn't cost, you know, <laughs> a parent to have to have to sell their house to, to fund it. And how are you feeling right now? Do you feel that you're more capable of taking two steps forwards and even taking one step back? I guess if anything, the last six months has proven that it's been a difficult six months in a, in a way, um, a journey of a huge amount of change with in my personal life and my professional life. Um, and one that probably would have, I'd never have thought I'd get through without being incredibly sick. You know, I've really thrived in many ways. There's been some real challenges, but I've grown more trust in myself that I can go through things that are really difficult and I can keep myself together because I have the tools now. So Laura, I'm now going to ask your mum to join the program as I, I want to get a sense of what it means for a parent to share the pain of her child. Linda Kent, welcome to A Chatter That Matters. Hi, Tony. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me on. When you're a parent dealing with a child that's going through this horrific, and it's a roller coaster that's mostly down and very rarely going up, do you feel guilty that you're part of it or the reason why? Or can you separate the connection as a family and more just be the mum that says, what can I do to, to right the roller coaster and get it moving back up? I'd actually made myself a couple of notes, one of which was that I didn't feel guilt other than Laura's parents are divorced. And, and of course, you carry some guilt about that because they're not with their natural mother and father. But listening to Laura's stories brought back a lot of how she was as a young girl. She was quiet. She would remove herself from the source of any pain that was going on, which was clearly greater than I actually knew until today. Her stepfather, Michael, that died, yeah, he was a bit of a fusspot, but he was a fab man. He was a great guy, but he used to think she sulked, so, but she didn't. She used to take herself off into another room and, and just be and, and hide away, basically. But what I didn't really appreciate, I think, at the time, was this quiet girl who caused no problems 
actually was suffering internally. It's interesting that you know I'm a, I'm divorced and uh, I have remarried. And fortunately, I, the woman that I married gets along incredibly well with my kids. But I wonder how much tension happens within relationships when you know, as Laura said, the daughter is seeking her dad's love, uh, her dad's attention, her dad kind of balancing between my new wife and my daughter. How all that must factor in, and I'm wondering. You know, I'm wondering if there's any lessons that we can learn and share with others. Sadly, my relationship with Laura's biological father is almost non-existent. If I had my time again, because at the time I think there was a lot of anger and resentment on, on my part, and I wish now I could have made a lot more steps to make that relationship better, I do think that my dysfunction from Laura's father and his from me, this isn't one-sided, I hasten to add, I think has had a bigger impact than ever I realised. So when you talk about guilt, I didn't know I had guilt about Laura's eating disorder at the time, but I think I've yeah, probably have played a part in that guilt, haven't I? Now that you're her rock, you're her best friend, do you ever worry that the shoe's going to drop again? Or do you get to the point now as a mom that you say, I can, we can celebrate going forward step in step. Maybe Laura lost two decades, but now she's back. She's my daughter. I'm healthy. I think I describe life a bit like traffic lights, Tony. So there's red, amber, green. I've come off red. I was on red for a very long time. I'm mostly on amber and I've never reached green. Funnily enough, these last six months, so I'll go back to front now, these last six months with Laura, with the, the, the trial she's had, and it's been a tough six months for her, I have watched her resilience and strength go beyond anything I thought was possible. And that, in a way, has helped me because it's stopped me, it's made me realise that she actually can survive that she not only survived, but has got strength to do more and more. But I think probably for most of us mums, and remember, I started from a blank sheet. There'll be a lot of mums out there like me, knew nothing. I had heard of anorexia. I'd worked around it at a school. But I didn't. you don't know it until you get involved with it. And it's a very frightening and lonely place for a parent to be. Uh, you don't know where to start. People say to you things like, is she better now? Or, oh, why is she bad again? I thought she was all right. It isolates you because in the end, you can't be bothered to answer these questions. I wanted to meet people who'd, parents, mothers who'd also gone through it. And in fact, it's only since I've, in the last 10 years, I've resourced a group where I live now who I wished I'd have had at the time, they're amazing. You walk into that room and there's parents going through exactly what you're going through. And that is just incredible because you don't have to explain. Do you know what? Really, it's still random in this country to get the right treatment. And although we had to do what we had to do to get Laura treatment in America, I could never regret that. I always end my podcast and my interview with the three things that I, I've taken away. Laura, I've got to know you over the last month and I consider you an old new friend. And you're just a wonderful human being and you're so open in how you share your pain and 
But one thing I learned is you still take it on so much that it's all about you and it's your guilt and the price my parents had to pay and stuff. But just seeing how you are today is a gift for your parents, which is to see their daughter fight their way back. To mom, I think your analogy with the traffic lights and being honest to say, I'm Amber, I've yet to see green. I, I just hope green comes screaming through and it blinds you to the point where you need sunglasses because I think you two have such an incredible relationship together. And the third thing that I really take away is we're all misfits. I think a lot of people pretend that they all fit in, but we're all very different human beings. And that you realize that, you know what, there's uniqueness and beauty and uh, superpowers in every human being. And you two today are my absolute superheroes. Thank you for joining me in Chatter That Matters. Thank you, Tony. Thank you for having me. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.